Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues, though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, learning to stay uncomfortable. We've got another conversation in our Stick With It series, where we talk with people about a time when they chose to stay open and curious when confronted with a situation or a perspective that really challenged them. Our natural instinct in those moments is to get defensive or shut down or back away. But the path to becoming a better citizen and a kinder neighbor is paved with these stick-with-it moments where we choose to stay uncomfortable long enough to find new empathy or clarity. My guest today, and I'm so excited about this, is Scott Carter. He's a playwright, a producer of talk shows and comedy specials. He was the longtime executive producer of Real Time with Bill Maher on HBO. He's the co-creator and executive producer of the PBS show, which just won a regional Emmy called Love and Respect with Killer Mike of Run the Jewels fame. And Scott Carter now has a podcast called Ye Gods, where he talks with artists and actors and journalists and other public figures about the beliefs that shape their lives. Scott, hi, thank you so much for taking time today. Julie, it is a delight. And I was, um, I enjoyed that, the introduction to the program and applaud the nobility of the of the mandate of this show that you have set for yourself, and I hope that I do not disappoint as a guest. <laughs> well, I feel like you can't because already the the topic of religion is one of those topics that can turn conversations uncomfortable so quickly that a lot of us just tend to want to you know avoid it, right? Um, so, what made you want to go there with industry entertainment folks like uh, Hari Kondabolu and Patricia Heaton and Larry Wilmore and Tim Gunn and Ken Burns, all people you've had on your podcast? Why, why talk religion and faith and spirituality? Um, what I have found is that when the interviews, these conversations that I have with people about the, it's really about ethics and morals, which then get into spirituality and religion for most people. Um, but very often after the taping, the guest will say to me, these are the questions that I love to talk about most and nobody wants to ask me about them. Mm -hmm. uh, at the end of a 90-minute talk with Tim Gunn, um, he said to me, Scott, I must confess, this, this experience has been cathartic for me. And I feel like, okay, great, mission accomplished. I want to get to the rules that people have determined by which they, they figure out if their own behavior or the behavior of other people is appropriate or inappropriate. What's exactly the, the rules? Even for people who are dogmatically religious, what I've also generally found is that they don't take a hundred percent of whatever their religion is offering. They pick and choose what works for them. Um, and then there are, I've had also on the, uh, on the, I mean, we've had Rain Wilson is a Baha'i. He, he did two episodes, Hari Kondabola, who you mentioned is a Hindu. We've had a disproportionate, like the Supreme Court itself, we've had a disproportionate number of Catholics so far who've, who've been on. And, um, 
they all have different ideas and they've all, but what's also interesting to me is the journey they've gotten through to get to wherever they are today. So a lot of people have started off in a home that is dogmatic one way or the other. They, they go through a rebellious period. And then at some point in their lives, they maybe feel a need to make some sort of cultural or, or spiritual commitment uh, to ground their lives. So for instance, Rain Wilson, his parents were Baha'i a religion not many people know about, and certainly not when he was born in the in the 70s. He was raised by his father and his father's second wife. They was raised Baha'i. Then in high school, he discovers drama. His interest in religion is transferred into his love of art and music. He also played in a rock band and he played bassoon in the in the school orchestra. And so and so art became the religion for him. And then he got involved in drugs and alcohol abuse and felt the need to have some spiritual return. And it came about because he started reading literature by Native Americans. But then over a period of time, he works back to the faith of his parents, and he is now a practicing Baha'i again. It's so interesting that that people tell you, these are the things I want to talk about, but nobody asks me. Um, I do feel like... And I certainly have felt this myself, that I'm, I'm driven by fear a lot of times. How am I going to be perceived if I want to talk about these things? Like, how, you know, if I ask them, are they going to respond weird? Am I going to make it awkward? Is it, you know, are they going to feel like it's it's off limits? And yet, and yet the idea that we're all walking around wishing we could have more of these conversations, um, I mean, it's kind of sad to me. <laughs> like, well, I, I think, Julie, that that some of that trepidation you're talking about I, I think it gets relieved when you are clear to people ahead of time about the areas in which they're going to go, in which you're going to ask. Yeah. Them. And um, I think if 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 you're clear on intention, so they've agreed. And then also, I've been producing talk variety programming on TV for about 35 years, so I know a ton of people. And a lot of them, I, some of what I'm bringing up are things that I've talked to them about at parties or on the phone or wherever. And yeah. so I know that they have a core notion that, that they're going to want to explore. And I think I am generally going to signal to them that I'm going to be treating them with respect. The podcast is Ye Gods. I'm speaking with Scott Carter, who is the host of that podcast. Um, and and let's talk about a stick with it story then. You have come with a specific moment or experience to share with us. So let's dive into that. What do we need to know to set this up? Well, to set it up, what you need to know is that I became asthmatic when I was two years old. Uh, my family made incredible sacrifices on my behalf. At at one point, we, well, we I was born in Kansas City, Missouri, and we moved to Arizona because they we they thought I was going to die if we stayed in Kansas City. If we go to Tucson, I will live. There was always a sense for me that everyone had sacrificed for me and that I owe something to them. I grew up in a state of indebtedness, and um. And, and part of the indebtedness manifested itself in this pressure I had to in some way become extremely successful. And, and that if that were the case, if I was able to write a, a great play or movie or become a famous actor or comedian or whatever, that um, 
somehow the this this amount of money by which I would be able to be generous to those who'd sacrificed for me would cancel out the debt and I could be free. Um and and so my early years were uh I mean I I uh, acted, I directed, I helped uh, start a theater group that's still going in Tucson, Arizona called the Invisible Theater. It's over 50 years old now. Later, I became a stand-up comic. I, I did improvisation. I did. Uh, I was an MC at the comic strip in New York. I, I, I wrote scripts. I wrote plays. Um, but what I want to what I want to get to is there was a time where everything that I was doing was failing, and I had moved from Arizona to New York, and I had spent a year writing a play. That first of all, when I got to New York. I had a trunk full of plays that were massive productions because in Tucson, Arizona, with my little original theater group, which was the hippest group in, in town and people loved it, we could write a play with 35 people in the cast and an orchestra and 10 sets and whatever, and everybody wanted to be a part of it. Well, I got to New York and what everybody wanted was a long one act, one set, two-character play, hopefully with a political theme, and I had nothing like that. <laughs> and uh, I tried my hand at writing humor pieces for The New Yorker, uh, and the most I got from there, I think I wrote about four or five of them, the most I got was a, um, they had a form letter that they would send everybody, thank you for submitting, it's not, you know, blah, 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 what we want, you know, from The New Yorker. But Roger Angel, uh, the great sports writer um, who was a fiction editor at the New Yorker. And he was a uh, Roger, he was a uh, John Updike's editor. And I one time got a little handwritten note from him at the bottom of the form saying, you know, sorry, but thank you, R.A. And um, that was a huge deal to me. I, I would read, I was uh, always someone who read about people who I admired for one reason or another, and what path did they take? So one of the paths that Woody Allen took was he wrote, Earl Wilson was a syndicated columnist, and Woody Allen got his start by submitting one-liner jokes to Earl Wilson. Well, Earl Wilson was still operating when I got to New York, you know, 20 years, at 25 years after Woody Allen. And I started submitting one-liners to Earl Wilson, and he started printing them. But it wasn't connecting me to anything else, and I wasn't getting paid for it. Eventually, I got down to, I, I moved out from New York. New York, the winters were harsh. When I was in Tucson, Arizona, I had no idea what the term wind chill factor meant. And very often, we'd go for weeks at a time below zero. And it was just, it was just terrible. Um, anyway, I moved out to L.A., and I thought the one thing that I have left to do was stand-up comedy. Now, I would go to a comedy club as an audience member, and I would just pray that I would not be called on, that whatever shirt I was wearing would not become a source of mockery for whoever was on stage. I would try to sit at the back. I would try to be anonymous. I would try to learn from whoever I was watching. Um, and I thought, this is this is what I've got to do. And I also thought that I, if it goes poorly the first time that I do this, I don't think I will have the courage to do it again. And so I started making rules to myself. 
All right. So at the original improvisation on Melrose in Los Angeles, on Sunday nights, they had an audition night where anybody could sign up and you would get chosen. Um, uh, there was a lottery. And so I thought, I've got five minutes. I'm going to try and have six jokes per minute. So that's a total of 30 jokes. All right. How am I going to make sure I don't forget everything? Well, I had a key word for all 30 jokes. Then on the inner knuckles of my hand, I wrote, <laughs> I wrote those key words. Then I began to memorize my, my 30 jokes. E every word backwards and forwards. And my, the key words on my hands, backwards and forwards. And then my, here was my agreement with myself. When I finally got on, all I had to do the first time was get one laugh. And if I got one laugh, I would go to the second time. Then I had to get two laughs the second time. And, and it was going to keep progressing until eventually yeah. I was going to get, you know, 20, 30 laughs, whatever. Okay, so, so I'm even scared to walk in and write my name down. So here's what I do. I, I got this concept that has been very important to my progress, which has been incrementalism. So one Sunday, I drove my car down and drove by the original improvisation on Melrose. Didn't even stop the car. Next time I stopped the car, parked, went and touched the door, <laughs> went back in the car and, and went home. The next time I came in, signed up, but I wasn't selected. Then, and, and finally, fourth time, I came in uh, and got... The, got the lottery and was picked to be the second auditioner. The MC that night was a uh, young, like surfer dude in a Hawaiian shirt, and uh, his name was Kenny Aubrey. I have not uh, had contact with him, but I re I remember this, and um, and and when I was introduced to come up on stage, I come up and I think this is. Um, this is kind of a game changer or not for the rest of my life. And even though I'm incredibly uncomfortable doing this, I know that if I don't do it, I will hate myself more than whatever pain I'm going through to get me through doing it. Mm. All right. So my very first line got a laugh. <laughs> so instantly my head is telling myself I've won already. I could walk off the stage right now. I have already succeeded with what I wanted to do. And then I thought, yeah, but you know what? Now I'm just going to relax. I've already gotten a little bit of acceptance from this group. I'm going to relax and I'm going to do the next 29. And some of the next 29, some of them worked, probably a, a small percentage of them. And I got to the end and then I, I bowed. I got off the stage. I went out through the bar, out. Uh, I stayed in the bar for maybe a couple of seconds. Then I went out the door and I was walking to my car when I looked behind me and the MC is running after me. He has introduced the next act. He knows he's got five minutes and he was running after me and this guy stops me. And this meant so much to me at the time. And he said, I just want to tell you, your writing is six months ahead of your performing and you just have to keep going. Hmm. And I got to get back on stage. So that 
kept me going through so many other times. And I have had that sense of trying to be as encouraging to others as possible. And let me follow this with something that happened to me out here about maybe eight years ago now. I was at a party for Kevin Nealon. And I was talking to a group of friends and there was a tap on my shoulder and I turned around and it was Adam Sandler. And he said, you won't remember this, but you were the MC on the stage at the comic strip in New York the very first time I performed. And after I got off stage, you came to me at the bar and you said to me, you're really funny and you just have to keep going. He said, you don't know how many months your words kept me going. So thank you. That's a that's a beautiful pay pay it forward story. I love that. Uh, and and the thing the thing that's so interesting to me about this um, Scott Carter is that you know we often talk about a stick with it moment sort of coming upon us and realizing in the moment, oh my goodness, like I this is not I'm not comfortable. I need to bail out of this, or I'm hearing you know we're going into territory I really don't want to discuss with this person, or I'm hearing this perspective and it really is creating a reaction in me, or I find myself in an environment that makes me very uncomfortable. I know I'm safe, but I'm very uncomfortable, and I think I'm going to leave. And then and then making the choice to stick with that discomfort and see where it might lead. And what's so interesting to me about this is that you anticipated that 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 moment way in advance and like built up all of these, this incrementalism idea. Like you anticipated that you were going to want to bail out after the first joke. (laughs) You anticipated that it was going to be hard to even get into the building. And so you created these incremental milestones to keep you in the discomfort, to keep you engaging with it so that you didn't, um, so that you didn't in the moment have to make that choice because you already set set yourself, you know, like, all I got to do is get one laugh. All I got to do is get two laughs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think some of this comes from, I started acting in plays when I was 12 or 13. And I think there is a lesson that you learn in a, in a play rehearsal process, which is the first day, everything's rough. And there comes a time when you got to get off book and people have to start memorizing their lines and, and that's going to be rough. And then you're going to have tech rehearsals when they're bringing in the lights and you've got getting costumes and that's going to be rough. Hmm. But the goal is to be getting to the opening night where everything is, is, are things you know. So you're only adding in one new place that demands some courage, which is getting through the notion that maybe there are critics from the local newspaper who are going to be in the audience who are going to be writing about you. So so what I was doing was first familiarizing myself going to shows at the improv. Okay, so I know what that's like. Then you know I go, you know when I finally walked into the barroom area where all the comics were hanging out, okay, I know what that's like. I know what signing up's like. I know what I've gone to audition nights before so I know that a lot of people don't don't do well. Um and a lot of people don't do well because they're not um prepared. Okay, I'm going to be super prepared. Um, And for a lot of them, they are the funniest people that all their friends know. And then when they get in front of paying strangers, it, it just hits them like a thunderbolt that actually professionally they are not funny. <laughs> and, and so, my, and this has been my goal with um, 
the show, the different shows that I produce. Um, so, for instance, let's say Politically Incorrect on uh, Comedy Central and then ABC. Um, Bill Maher, really talented comedian, but he'd never really hosted anything before. And so within the first week or so of pre-production, I just started gathering guests. We did 10 practice shows before we taped our first episode. I did a talk show with Candace Bergen where I was looking to leave Politically Incorrect after 1,100 episodes. And I found out that Candace Bergen had signed a deal to do a talk show. And I found out that she didn't have a producer. And I knew a lot of people who, who knew her because they'd worked on Murphy Brown. So I called my agent and said, can you get me, get me a meeting with her? Let me see if I like her and if she likes me. And so I went over to her house and uh, we talked about mutual people we knew. And then I said, Candace, you've made this uh, commitment to do, uh, she had to do 20 shows. Uh, they wanted her to do 60, but she had an out after 20. And in fact, later, Tom Warner of Carsey Warner said to me, if you get her to 21, you'll have, you'll have earned your salary for the year. So anyway, so I was at her house. We're out in her, on her porch. This is a house that before this was owned by Roger Moore. Um, and she called it Casa, Casa Costa Mucho because she did all of these renovations to it and it cost a lot of money. Anyway, which she more than made up by what she earned from Murphy Brown. Um, anyway, I said to her, you, you've made this commitment to the talk show. Tell me what scares you. So she just started listing all the things that scared her. What if I'm talking to someone and I don't like them? What if I'm talking to somebody and I can't remember the next question? You know, and she went on and on. And finally, I said, you know what? I don't think there's a problem in anything you've mentioned. I think we can deal with everything. And, and so I, um, when I got this job offered and she liked me and wanted to work with me and I accepted this offer, what I started doing is going over to her house and doing theater games with Candace and her assistant. And then I started bringing people over one by one. And at first I just had people meet her in her kitchen and just have them, have her talk to them for, you know, 45 minutes or so. And I would introduce one new element each time. So I said, okay, Candace, what we're going to do is we're going to divide the 45 minutes in two. So halfway in, I'm going to signal you and give you five, four, three, two, one, and then you're going to say good, you know, go to commercial, and then we're going to come back. We'll do it. And then I, I also began to get. We had a theme song, so I began to play the theme song mm -hmm. before she would talk, and then I would fade it out, or I'd fade it in as she had to go to a commercial. Then I'd fade it back in when she came back. So anyway, by time we moved into the studio, which was trying to be a duplicate of her apartment in Manhattan on Central Park South to make her feel at home. By, by time we did our first show, which was with Jodie Foster, um, she felt completely natural as a host. She'd practiced it all. She'd, she'd been in all the uncomfortable places that scared her. Yeah, and, 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 and when Jodie Foster was coming to the show, I said, this is the first show. It's made up to look like her apartment in, uh, on Central Park South. Bring a housewarming gift. So Jodie Foster brought a lava lamp and a pair of pink fuzzy slippers for Candace to wear. <laughs> and it was just a delightful way to start doing this. And yeah. it made, and, and, and Jodie Foster said to me later, she goes, I like when people give me assignments. Great. Here's the assignment. Make her feel comfortable. I love it.
Scott Carter, thank you so much for sharing your your wisdom and your experience. It's been great talking with you. I've really enjoyed this. Well, I, I enjoyed it too. And um, I, I do not know if it's wise or not. I know that some of these things have worked for me so far. It's all we can ask. We're just here trying to learn from each other. Yep. So I really appreciate it. Scott Carter is the host of Ye Gods, which is his new podcast. He is a playwright and a comedian, and he was the longtime executive producer of Real Time with Bill Maher on HBO. He is currently co-creator and executive producer of Love and Respect with Killer Mike, which is on PBS. We really have not talked about the idea of preparing for a stick-with-it moment in this conversation series yet. But it makes so much sense. Listening to Top of Mind each week while we dive into tough topics and present perspectives that challenge you is one way to practice getting comfortable with the discomfort of challenging ideas. But when you're face-to-face with someone you really disagree with, that fight-or-flight instinct kicks in so fast. I find myself shutting down or wanting to lash out before I even realize what's happened. Staying open and curious in that moment is a choice. It's a hard one, as we've heard over and over in this Stick With It conversation series. I think I will be more likely to make that choice if I have mentally prepared for it. If I'm on the lookout for a Stick With It moment, I can recognize what's happening when one comes upon me, which can hopefully buy me just a little bit of space to acknowledge the fear or the anger that's flaring up (laughs) inside of me, and then try to replace that with curiosity, humility. And I love this incremental idea that maybe the first time we recognize a stick-with-it moment, we are not going to stay in it for very long because it's just too uncomfortable. But what if we commit to ask one question? That's all we got to do, and then we can bail out. And we can even decide what the question's going to be in advance, right? I find when I plan what I'm going to say, it's a lot easier to follow through. One of my favorites goes something like this. I'll say, wow, I really do not see it that way. But I'd like to understand more. So would you share an experience you've had that has shaped your perspective on this? And maybe the first time you ask that question, you listen to their response, you thank them for sharing, and then you end it and leave. That's the incremental idea, right? But I bet that you will hear something in their answer that will tug at you a little bit. It's going to pique your curiosity, and you're you're going to want to hear more. You'll want to ask a follow-up question and then maybe share an experience of your own. And before you know it, maybe you're sticking with it. <laughs> and anyway, I'd love to hear how it goes for you. So email topofmind at byu.edu. Maybe we'll even have a chance to talk about it here on the podcast. Top of Mind is a BYU Radio production. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.